When I was 16 years old, I got in trouble. I enjoyed my newfound freedom as a teenager a little bit too much. I was no longer dependent on my older sister. I was no longer dependent on my mother and nagging her over and over again to take me where I wanted to go. I could go anywhere I wanted to, and it felt like at any time I wanted to go. I had this freedom called a driver's license. But it would take some time still before my own personal responsibility as a young teenager caught up with this new responsibility. Many of you are smiling already. You feel the same thing. You got in trouble too as a teenager. I was pulled over after speeding and passing in a no-passing zone. Now, I know, I know. But technically, I started in a passing zone. I didn't end in a passing zone, but I started in a passing zone. You see, all these years, I still want to justify myself (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) And the police officer wanted to make an impression on me, so he had me open up my trunk, show him what was in the trunk, and then he took me. He didn't handcuff me, but he took me, and he put me in the back of his vehicle while he asked me questions and processed my tickets. And I responded back with questions. Are you sure that I was passing in a no-passing zone? Are you sure I was speeding? Did you really clock me speeding, going faster than I was supposed to? I want an answer to my questions. I demand an answer to my questions right now. And if you know me, you know I didn't say those things. (laughs) I humbly and very nervously sat there in the back of his car and answered all his questions, yes, sir, no, sir, humbly submitted to his authority and did everything that he said. And yet sometimes we feel like responding in the way that I first said I did. We feel like demanding a response to our questions in order to justify ourselves. We want others to answer our questions. Things wouldn't have gone well if I had responded that way. I, I, will have, I would have forgotten who he was and the authority he had, the power he had, and I would have forgotten who I was, a humble citizen who was guilty of breaking the law. And yet, brothers and sisters and friends, this is often how we either feel like responding or actually respond to God when he does something we don't like. When he doesn't meet our expectations, Looking back over your own life, you may be filled with anger at how your life has turned out, how things have turned out for you, and you want answers. You demand answers for how things have turned out. Or maybe it isn't quite anger. Maybe it's more of a disappointment. You would call it a disappointment in God with the things he has allowed to happen to you in your life, the trials you face, the sufferings, the sorrows that you have faced, and you are disappointed with God. You've expected something different. And ultimately, you know God is sovereign. God is in control of these things. And so you blame him for how things have turned out, and you would like answers to your questions. Why have you done this? Why have you allowed this? 
Or perhaps you haven't been in this world long enough to face these sorts of trials and sufferings. And so far, you've coasted through life happily and you haven't had to face terrible and dark and difficult things. And for you, this sermon is more preparatory because if you go through life without facing any trials or sufferings, that, that is the exception. The norm, brothers and sisters, is that we will face really difficult trials, sufferings, death, sickness, heartbreak, broken relationships. We will face all of those things. And when you face that trial, when you finally come to that point, there's no doubt you will be tempted to become angry with God. You will be tempted to be disappointed with God. You will perhaps even be tempted to demand answers from God for what has happened. If we find that we are angry with God or disappointed with Him, if we have demanded answers from Him, it is because we have forgot, forgotten something very important. It's because we have forgotten ultimately who God is and we have forgotten who we are. This is what I would call the theme of the sermon this morning. If we are to face trials and sufferings with godliness, we must remember who God is and we must remember who we are. Otherwise, we will respond in all of these sinful ways. We've been walking through the book of Job and we've been taking a a big picture view of Job a big survey of Job. Last week we covered almost 30 chapters. This week we cover quite a few, almost 10 chapters. Job was rich in possessions, in family. He was rich in righteousness. And then all of a sudden he lost it all. He suffered greatly. He lost his family. He lost his possessions. He lost even his health. And his own wife said, curse God and die. Be done with it. And yet he held fast to his integrity. Satan's challenge against Job was met by faith on the part of Job. Job endured the trial. He he did prove that he loved God for who he was. And yet, that wasn't the end of the story. We saw last week Job wrestling with why. Why did this happen? Job's friends come to him with the greatest wisdom found in the Near East and sought to address his suffering. Here's why you're suffering, Job. It's because you have sinned in some sort of way. You see, a person sins and then God judges them in their life in sufferings and and things of that nature. And all you have to do now is repent of that sin and God will take the suffering away. And we said if you read Proverbs... In a simplistic kind of way, not in a nuanced way, you might come to that conclusion that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And yet Job's friends are turned away. Job responds to them at every turn until Job's friends are silent, signifying he has won the debate. He has proved himself to be innocent and they have nothing to say to him. But we also saw that Job goes a bit too far in his pursuit, in his seeking out the answers of why, he ultimately accuses God of either being unjust or of not being powerful enough to accomplish his purposes. He goes too far in his wrestlings with why. In chapter 31, he 
calls on God to come down and appear before him to give an account, to give an answer for why he has suffered the way that he has. And we were left, after chapter 31, wondering, is God going to show up and answer Job? Well, he doesn't, at least not yet. In chapter 32, we see another friend show up, a younger friend, and he begins to address Job's questions in a slightly different way than his other friends have done so far. The structure of our sermon this morning will just be in these three parts. Elihu's speech, God's speech and Job's response, and then God's second speech and Job's response. Job, uh, Elihu, this new friend of Job, speaks in chapters 32 through 37. He's given more time than all the other friends. We haven't heard anything about him. All of a sudden, he shows up in chapter 32. After his other friends have been silent, he speaks up. He does appear to be humble, and yet he says that he has something new to add to the story. Notice in the first few verses of chapter chapter 32. These three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. That is Job. Then Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer. Although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. We have a few hints here that Job did go too far. That he was righteous in his own eyes and that he justified himself rather than God. In chapter 33, Elihu does offer a rebuke to Job. Notice in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 33. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words, for God speaks in one way. And in two, though man does not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men, when they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Here, Elihu, and throughout Elihu's speech, he is offering something a little bit different than Job's other friends. He's saying, maybe you're not being punished because of your sin. Maybe God is warning you to not depart from his way. Kind of a, a preventative warning. So he is, he's not calling God injustice. He is not calling Job sinful, and that's why he's suffering. He's saying maybe there's another reason. He's getting Job, he's forcing Job out of this idea of it's either one thing or another. It's either I'm righteous or God is unjust. He's forcing him out of that, that, those, that idea to say maybe there's another situation at work. God speaks in various ways. Maybe God is, is speaking to you through the suffering to prevent you from going astray from him. And then in chapter 40, 34, Elihu defends the justice of God. In verses 12 through 15, God does not do wickedly or pervert justice. In fact, God is the very definition of justice and righteousness. 
in verses 21 to 25, Elihu says God's knowledge of man is perfect. He has no need to kind of examine you to see what's in your heart. All is laid bare before him. You cannot hide anything from God. He knows you. He knows you intimately from the inside out. He doesn't need to consider man. And then he rebukes Job again. See in this key verse, chapter 35, verse 16. Job opens his mouth in empty talk and he multiplies words without knowledge. Now this is actually confirmed by Yahweh, by God, when God addresses Job. He speaks without knowledge. So we have a hint that Elihu, we should at least see him in some sense in a positive way. He is speaking truth better than the other men spoke of God. And then notice also chapter 37, verses 14 to 24. Now throughout Elihu's speech, he keeps, he keeps using this word. You'll see this word repeated, behold, behold. Behold, in the early parts of Elihu's speech, he says, Behold me, I, I, I am new to the scene. I, I waited my turn because of these other men who were older than me. And yet, behold, here I am. I'm, my heart is burning to speak of what has been rumbling up within me that you three have not spoken. And then he, he says, Behold you, to Job. He, he turns his attention to himself, behold me, I'm ready to speak. Behold you, considering yourself. And then at the end, he says, behold God. Behold God. Look at verses 14 to 24 of chapter 37. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes his lightning of his clouds to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. Can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told of him? Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness He will not violate. Therefore men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. The function of Elihu's speeches... For Job and also for us, the reader, is to turn our attention away from ourselves to the almighty, sovereign, supreme God. It turns our, our minds and our hearts away from pitying ourselves, from justifying ourselves, from seeking to find the answers of why, and it turns our gaze to the glorious God who is outside of us. If we have begun to accuse God or look at Him in anger and disappointment, perhaps it's because our focus has been on ourselves. It's been squarely on ourselves and our own questions and our own self-righteousness. Our focus 
has too long been on ourselves and not on the glory and majesty and supremacy of God. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, especially those of you who are going through sufferings, turn your eyes to your glorious creator. Look away from merely introspection and look outside of yourself to the one who made all things and delight in him. Delight in his power. Delight in his goodness. Delight in his sovereignty. Delight in him. Turn your focus, your gaze away from yourself and to him. This is what Elihu does for Job. He turns his gaze away from himself to God and he prepares Job to meet God. Because this is what we see next. God comes down and speaks. This is what Job had longed for. This is what Job wanted. Come and present yourself before me. And he does so in chapter 38 and following. God appears before Job in a whirlwind and speaks. We see his first speech in Job's response in chapters 38, 39, and 40. And you see what what God says when he speaks. Job demanded answers, and God does not give him answers. What does he give him instead? Look through chapters 38, 39, and 40. And what you'll find are a lot of question marks. Instead of answering Job, God questions Job. You have questions, Job? Here, I'll present some questions to you. We'll see how how good you are at answering questions. Since you are so wise and full of knowledge, you answer questions for me. Look at his address in verses 1 through 3. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, you're not throwing light on the situation. You're throwing confusion and darkness on the situation, on my purposes that I designed for you. Dress for action like a man, he says. I will question you and you make it known to me. Dress for action like a a warrior. Get ready for battle. We're going to wrestle right here, Job. Are you ready? Get ready for the questions that I have for you. In the rest of chapter 38, we see God's great creation and preservation over all things. Where were you, Job, when all of this took place? And notice the biting sarcasm. God is the author of sarcasm. It's appropriate at times, and it's appropriate here. Look in verses 4, 18 and 21. In verse 4, Tell me if you have understanding. Surely you know, Job. You have the answers to all things. Tell me. And in verse 18, God says to Job, Declare if you know all this. And then verse 21, you know, here's the most biting sarcasm of all, you know for you were born then and the number of your days is great. It's almost mocking Job for his audaciousness in questioning God. In chapters 38 and 39, we see God's intimate knowledge of his creation. So we see his creation, his preservation, and then his care for his creation. These animals, the lion, the raven, the mountain goat, the wild donkey and ox, the ostrich, the horse, and the hawk. And then in chapter 40, verse 1 and 2, 
he presents his case to Job and says, okay, now give an answer. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Can you, the one finding fault with God, are you going to wrestle with me? Are you going to be able to present yourself before me? He who argues with God, let him answer it. All right, Job, here are all the questions. Answer me. We see Job's response. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I proceed no further. Job's response is a recognition and understanding that he cannot answer, that he has no answer. He has been humbled before the Almighty. He says in particular that he is of small account. He is of small account. So his first response in this first speech is considering his own insignificance before God. He's little. He is nothing. He is insignificant, unimportant compared with the greatness of God. Who are we that we could answer back to God? And especially in our culture, I think this is, this is something that we, we need to get a real sense of our own insignificance. Because our, our culture is constantly saying, you are important, you can change the world, you can do anything, building us up until we are all inflated with our own self-importance. Now, some of those things are true. You, you can make real changes in the lives of people around you. You are important in that God has created you in His image for His glory. And yet, we, we have gone too far with it often. The emphasis here in Job is that we would gain a sense of our own insignificance before God. I had a sense of this insignificance when I visited New York City for the first time. I walked out of the subway and there I stood in, in the center of the city and I just I looked up and I was in awe of just the huge reality before me. I couldn't believe it. I felt so small and insignificant. I've felt that way as I've traveled to other, other countries. This vast, this vast world, this amazing world full of people and individuals and cultures and churches, and it's amazing and it makes you feel small. Well, consider then how f- small we should feel as we think about the vastness of all of creation of seemingly infinite space. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, has approximately 100 billion stars in it. You you can't even, that doesn't even affect you because you can't even understand the quantity of that number. 100 billion stars in it. But the Milky Way is not the only galaxy in the universe. There are about... 10 million galaxies. In the observable universe, that's just what we can see. So we might consider that there are about 1 billion trillion stars in the universe. And we would venture to think that we are of great significance without God making us significant? 
we should have a sense of our own littleness, our own smallness before God. We should understand our own smallness and God's greatness because compared with the one billion trillion stars in the universe, it's a speck of dust in the hand of God. A speck of dust in the hand of God. He is the almighty creator over all of these things. And that causes us to put our hand over our mouth whenever we would accuse God. Notice God's second speech. He keeps going. He wants to take Job further down in humility. And we see his second speech in chapters 40. And 41. God challenges Job yet again in verses 6 through 14. He repeats his challenge to Job to get ready as a warrior and he will challenge him. And in verse, verse 8, God charges Job with breaking God's judgment and contempt, condemning God to make himself in the right. So he's bringing real legitimate charges against Job. And I love this challenge in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 40. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust all together, bind their faces in the world below. Then, if you do all these things, in other words, be like me, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God demonstrates his power and his glory, in particular in pointing out two amazing beasts that he has created. And we're there's still confusion about what exactly is he talking about. Some people think he's talking about a, a hippopotamus and a crocodile. But the words just don't seem to match up to that idea. These seem like greater sorts of beasts than we can imagine. In verses 8 through 11 of chapter 41, God says, lay your hand on him, Leviathan. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? If you wouldn't dare go before this beast, how could you possibly present yourself before God as though you were going to battle him? He humbles Job once again, and we see Job's final response in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 42. Job responds and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He, acknowledge, he humbly acknowledges God's supremacy over him. He humbly submits to God's authority. There is no one like you. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God there. He admits that it's him. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He admits to speaking inappropriately, to speaking what he did not have understanding about. And then in verses 5 through 6, he repents. 
I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This experience has humbled Job before God. He said, I'd I'd heard about God, but now I experienced him face to face. I've heard about the ocean, but now I have experienced the ocean. I've heard about the Himalayan mountains, but now I have experienced them firsthand and my life has been changed. Job has been humbled by God and meeting him face to face and he repents. He rejects himself, that's the the word there. He despises himself and he relents. He, He gives up. He repents of what he has said in dust and ashes. He abandons himself in humility under God. We need to understand who God is and who we are. Not only is Job small and insignificant before the Almighty, he is also sinful. He is of little account, yes. He is of small account, but he is also sinful before a holy and righteous and perfect God. We, brothers and sisters, friends, we are not only insignificant, we are sinful. We respond to our sufferings in sinful ways. And if we are able to acknowledge who we are and who God is, then we we can begin to face our sufferings in a godly way. This, This scene and the book of Job calls to attention a few things we need to remember. One, it calls to attention our need for revelation. Job needs revelation. He's asking for revelation. God, speak. God, reveal yourself. And he does so in a great whirlwind. All right, he speaks to him. Now, God has revealed himself in creation generally. We know something about his power, his might, his goodness. But now he has also spoken to us in his holy word and in Christ Jesus our Savior. If we're going to exist in the world, we need revelation from God. And he has given it to us in Christ. Now consider, God came down to Job in a whirlwind. He came down to Moses in a fire on the mountain, consuming the mountain. This is not the kind of revelation we need, brothers and sisters. And sure enough, the scripture tells us we have a better revelation in the person of Jesus Christ for us. If he were to come to us in a whirlwind, if he were to come to us in fire coming down on a mountain, we would say, please speak no more to us. We cannot handle it. We would flee from him because we would be afraid of his power and his might. The unapproachability of God would be clear to us. And yet he has so demonstrated his grace to us, his care for us, That despite the enormity of the distance between us, despite our own insignificance and his own supremacy, he has come down in the flesh to meet us, to speak to us. He has come down to us in grace. His unapproachability magnifies the greatness of his grace. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and following. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure 
the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now that in and of itself, if we stop there, you'd have to consider you standing before the judge of all things, you would be right to tremble before him. But he goes on, and to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have, become, you have come before the almighty judge of heaven and earth. And you are insignificant. And you are desperately sinful. And he has given you a mediator in the person of Jesus Christ who lived the life that you should have lived and who died sacrificially for your sins to bring you to God. Not as judge, but as a caring and loving father. How great the chasm between us and this holy God which has been bridged in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is unfathomable. It is amazing. Jesus is the revelation from God and he is our mediator. We sang these lyrics from Reckless Love. We sang, there's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. We speak of of God's reckless love, not because it's reckless, but it appears to be so. The rest of the song speaks of great purpose and design in God's love for us. But from the untrained eye, it appears reckless. It appears wasteful. Why, why would God himself come down in the flesh and die for such an insignificant, sinful person? It seems wasteful. And yet, by design, it displays that he is not only judge, but also just in what he does. It displays his magnificent, marvelous grace for those who have rebelled against their creator in sinfulness and selfishness. We are to stand in awe of who God is to us in light of our own insignificance and sin. The book of Job doesn't give us all the answers that we might want. It doesn't give you all the answers you might want about your suffering, your trials, your difficulties. But he gives us the answers we need. Chief among them, how can we know God in his revelation to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ? How can we sinful humans be made right before this holy, righteous, perfect God? We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. It is only by the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our mediator. Let's worship him for that.